0: Greetings, dear listener. Garmology Podcast is back with a freshly harvested episode for you. Little pun there to sort of hint at what's coming up. I'm your host, Nick Johannesson, and for those of you still marginally curious about the seasonal status update for the oldest town in Norway, you could try looking that up. I can report that the cold autumn mode is still with us, with odd sprinklings of snowflakes. Mostly dry though, so wool is still the textile of choice. I have a Patreon now for those that would like to support the podcast. You can find it at patreon.com comology Three new supporters this week. Thank you to Chris, Simon and Sarah. Your support is very much appreciated. Supporting the podcast is entirely optional. All 134 episodes are freely available for all to enjoy. Just wanted to point that out. I've not gone super commercial here. So let's get down to what matters where are we heading with this week's episode you ask well we're off to hear all about nettles with alan in brighton and i'd suggest pausing now while you arrange your hot beverage and blanket so you can just fully enjoy it when it gets started and i hope you do enjoy it i know you so let's get cracking Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, today we're back in Great Britain, southern coast, I believe, and my guest is Alan. Alan, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, My name is Alan Brown, and I'm based in Brighton uh, on the south coast in the UK. Um, I have no background in textiles at all I did train um, as a fine artist for a while and have worked variously along the along the years doing illustration and bits of book layout but always sort of felt a bit like an artist who was struggling to find their medium really and then in a very roundabout unplanned way I sort of became interested in nettles and quite how I arrived there is uh, it sort of changes in in my head day to day i mean ostensibly it was as simple as we got a family dog bonnie and i just found myself out on long country walks um with bonnie just exploring the countryside and getting into um, foraging and learning about wild flowers and plants and their uses and stuff and i remembered being shown how to make nettle string or cordage many many years ago on a permaculture course Um, And there were nettles wherever we walked. So I started um, just fiddling around with nettles and trying to remember how to make cordage. And really that just started the whole snowball rolling. Um, I was uh, I realized that as I was playing with the nettle, well, the bast essentially, just the, the fibers are in the outside of the plant. Um, that as I sort of scraped away at them with my fingernail, I could see that within this sort of ribbon-like bass, um lay all these extraordinary, fine, beautiful fibres. And I was like, oh my goodness, these look really promising. And I knew nothing about how clothes were made or textiles were woven. But the burning questions just seemed to bubble up of like, goodness i wonder if the nettles have ever been used to make clothing and if so how was it done and when was it done and how could i learn to do it um yeah so i i began looking on the internet looking uh talking to people trying to find books on it and i just couldn't really find any sort of how-to as to exactly what the most efficient way of getting at the fibers was and although there were lots of tantalizing clues that indeed nettles have been used to make textiles for millennia, <clears throat> excuse me, of how that exactly was done. And I just really wanted to know what the cloth looked and felt like. And I think if someone could have shown me um, a piece of nettle cloth, that would have been the end of the inquiry. But because I couldn't find anyone that actually had any extent um, N- nettle textiles i just thought man i'm just gonna have to work it out myself and give it a go and that really just started what's now a sort of eight or nine year exploration um and uh, yeah so it, it it really has just been a a series of random events and along the way um my old friend dylan who's a filmmaker um, we did a couple of, uh, we did a short how-to video a few years into the process. And um, yeah, we put that little film out on, on, uh, for free out on YouTube and stuff called um, Nettle for Textiles. And it was really just a short how-to just to share the information of what I would discovered with a handful of people who um, were interested. And I thought it just easier to have a little video Um, demonstrating it rather than typing it out each time for people and uh, yeah to our complete amazement that short little film um, just went viral got viewed millions of times and uh, so off the back of that um, me and a couple of other people a woman called Gillian Adom who wrote Uh, this amazing book called From Sting to Spin, about the history of nettle fibre. And she did that really before the internet was a thing. Um, So just went to botanical institutes and museums and just followed down every lead um, to try and get to the bottom because there's a lot of mythology around uh, around nettles and their history and then another friend Bridget who's a weaver who um, was also exploring nettles so the idea was that you know while there was this interest we should try and gather all the nettle heads together in one place and we could collectively learn more together than we could ourselves and so we started uh, a Facebook group called nettle for textiles and Bridget put together a little simple website and yeah that community has just grown and grown and is now p- nearly probably 30,000 people strong such a collegiate lovely unstressful group of people interested in nettles and other wild fibers <clears throat> and you know whilst i settled on a way of working with nettles which worked for me um as the groups uh developed i've realized there's many many ways to skin this particular cat and everyone sort of tends to gravitate to a method that works for them um, but yeah the <clears throat> the information that that has been unearthed both historical newspaper references um has just been really amazing we've got a lot of experimental archaeologists involved and um yeah so from that it seems like um you know nettle uh spinning and weaving with nettle really is an ancient um uh craft but it's one that's largely disappeared in recent years and I think we just stumbled onto it this sort of zeitgeist moment of people suddenly, you know, in the wake of um realizing quite how damaging the textile industry is, environmental and sustainability and all that, that there seems to be this um great need for people to sort of connect with nature and their own immediate landscape. And um yeah, so we we've kind of just ridden that that wave of um yeah just this sort of general um revived way of looking at it so even though it's a kind of ancient craft it it really feels like we're kind of reinventing it and um yeah it's, it's it's just been fascinating and wonderful and uh and then just in the last um year or so um we went dylan went on to do a documentary about my journey and process of actually trying to weave an actual garment out of nettles um, which happened to be a a dress and uh, yeah so that film uh, the nettle dress has now been out on general release in the UK and we've had a couple of um, outside of the UK online screenings of the film and yeah just like the nettle for textiles Facebook group we've just been astonished by how well received the film Um, you know how well it's been received and also yeah just how um, how it's just brought together I mean I don't think there really has been a film so um, focused on the actual process um, and the craft itself so it's I mean it's not really slow film because Dylan's a very brilliant editor and the, the film bounces along at quite a quite a pace but it's a very gentle film Um, And it sort of deals with the surrounding story of what happened in my personal life with the loss of my wife, Alex, um, in the middle of the whole project and just how um, the actual handwork of work processing nettles and spinning just these very sort of old and um, once widespread uh, craft. was just so emotionally uh, useful to me in dealing with grief and just having a a, a way of, um, yeah, keeping my hands busy and that knock-on effect of uh, it just helping with uh, peace of mind and having a sense of direction. Um, yeah, and so I find myself a year down the line with the film still uh, playing widely to very receptive audiences and, yeah as I said at the beginning none of this was planned there was no master plan involved it's just been almost a a sort of magic that the nettles have cast in their wake and uh, you know as I said in the film even though the film's about me processing and transforming nettles into cloth really it felt like the nettles were processing and transforming me emotionally through a very very difficult time and I think that that sort of resonates with people. There's something about working with plants and bringing um, the fibres through from their raw state into finished cloth, um, which just is... um, yeah intriguing and all all consuming and along the way i've met so many wonderful people many of uh, or several of, of, of which have been on your podcast justine um with her uh, linen jeans and patrick grant who is working with her and yeah just just so many people linen malin linen and what they're doing um so <clears throat> even though the you know in many levels it felt like going down this nettle rabbit hole was quite um going to be quite a solitary hermetic journey um it's actually been the complete opposite it's really kind of connected me to this much wider community um, and that's been just absolutely wonderful so yeah that's the background
0: i wanted to loop back a little bit to something you mentioned right at the start because you mentioned that this interest or it's interesting the nettles came via permaculture can you tell me a bit about about what permaculture is and how that came up with nettles
1: yes I mean just to sort of give a bit of background I mean Dylan uh, who directed the film um, we were part of this whole sort of 90s environmental campaign um, and you know we were p- involved in the roads protests and um, that sort of thing. And Dylan ran a an outfit called Conscious Cinema, where they were sort of filming actions and then kind of replaying them back to the people who took part in the actions. Setting up hanging sheets between trees in the woods, and um, and I think off off the back of that period of you know the sort of realization of what was happening in the world and sustainability and all just the whole all these questions um i think very soon a a bunch of us in brighton and i think this was more widespread just had this feeling of like well we can't keep demonstrating against what we don't want we need to be the change we want to see and uh, so a lot of us moved on to allotments um which in the uk there's there's this golden bit of legislation which has remained more or less intact whereby you can have access to a piece of land um an a lot an allotted piece of land at a sort of peppercorn rent uh, to grow your own vegetables and at the time the allotments in Brighton at any rate had hit an all-time low there were just loads of empty allotments and you could just sign up and they asked you how many allotments you wanted and you went over and picked up the keys and you could get a spade into the ground by the end of the day Um, and that was really transformational so food growing and sustainability or really more of a symbolic sustainability is and you know we're not fully self sufficient in the food we grow but that was just such a massive life changing event really and that's been ticking along in the background we've been working our allotment sort of collectively although we have our own areas within it for you know 20 25 years now um so that was that was has been a background interest in mine and yeah permaculture um is just this uh began in Australia but it's now a worldwide um, way of just I mean it encompasses all it's a very open-ended brief really but it's just this way of designing your um, the areas where you market garden or garden grow or even and it can just be scaled up to farm levels where you're just sort of really working with your particular environment and how just to make um make it work so it's both productive and sustainable um just using very simple um techniques of but it's deep you know it's uh, you know even though i've been growing vegetables for for 20 plus years or so um you know it's an ever learning process but i think what it It sort of set the background for me starting to think about clothing and, you know, sort of thing I've got, I've got a handle on what it takes to actually grow, grow food. And it's a, it's a commitment, you know, it's it really is, it, it kind of, you have to shape your life around the growing season and, and kind of anchoring you into a particular little portion of land and just deepening that understanding of it and so you know like i say it was a symbolic enterprise ultimately but it did make it it started to open questions about about clothing and going i kind of have a handle on what it takes what it physically takes um to grow food um, but clothing, I know nothing about. I don't know how my clothes are made, where they're coming from. I know that this is a, I've been learning of how, what an impact clothing has. And, you know, as I kind of thought forward into the future, going, what does the world look like as we start to withdraw from fossil fuels or this finite resource starts to become increasingly expensive? Um, how would I go about? um clothing myself and you know around around Sussex where we live there's sheep everywhere so that was my first thought was like man there's this resource that's just largely not being used um you know I should be looking into to that and and it was really Nettles that just kick-started that whole thing um of going what clothing can i create from within a very small radius of my home there are resources out there and nettles was just it just felt like of all the forageable fibers this was this really looked like it could work and there's nettles a plenty and so just like symbolically growing my own food i just wanted to symbolically learn really on a very direct r- way what it actually took to create a garment just using hand tools and um, not you know what 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 does that actually look and feel like what sort of level of commitment is so so yeah like I I have no background in textiles I don't really have I have never worked in the industry so I'm, I'm really coming at it from a a kind of an idealistic dewy-eyed hippie perspective <laughs> um but yet it, it it has been a really really valuable lesson and um you know i feel that there's such a you know i don't know where the future will take us at what level we will find ourselves but it feels like food growing and well I mean I think I made along that journey I made the connection that food growing and fibre growing are very much part and parcel of the same thing it's not like a separate subject as I originally thought Um, and so on our allotments I now grow flax every year I grow dye plants and I really enjoy Taking, you know, I get picking up fleece and raw wool in the UK is really easy, especially in lockdown when it just became it's more expensive for farmers to send their wool to the market than it costs to shear the sheep. So you really can just pick it up uh, for nothing, Um, but also just trying to keep an eye on where do I need to heat water up? Um, is there a workaround where you know how how to create it in a, in, a, in an easier and, and low energy input way as possible, which is obviously a lot of handwork and I just feel that hope you know I, th- I think I probably take a more pessimistic extreme view of where we will end up like plan for the worst and hopefully it'll be at a higher, a benchmark than that but you know there is there is that fact that pre-industrialization which in the huge span of time where we've been on the planet really is just a small blip um, we did make our, ha- our clothes by hand and we've made some of the most incredible textiles ever been produced have been done by hand so there is this benchmark that it has been done And I just sort of felt like really food growing and fiber and clothes are probably two areas in which we should probably be heading the other way rather than the direction of travel thus far has been to uh, have machinery to replace human labor, which at the time probably felt like a a liberating thing that our hard... uh, you know because it it is hard doing these things entirely by hand and you know we're we've lost that sort of toughness really that our ancestors worked under but you know it does seem i mean the un uh reports on what is ultimately the most productive way of producing food it does seem to boil back down to hand gardening more than anything else just because working by hand you can just be much more efficient you don't need to have huge fields of just one thing all at the same height Uh, so bending it towards the machinery when you you take back more control you can plant at different levels you can interplant Um, and it's you know even growing just such a small amount of flax on my allotment and a bed at home um, i'm already running in excess of what i can personally process by hand um so yeah that 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 that's really the and i think that probably you know there's so many areas where it's hard to fathom how we're going to do without fossil fuels running lighting and hospitals and water treatment plants and all the drugs that we need to stay alive and treat conditions it's really hard to see where there's much give but textiles and food it seems like wow, those are the areas where we can probably have a much higher level of human input and come off machinery um, to a much greater greater degree and it and I think what I've learned about gardening and making uh clothing and textiles from scratch is you know as my friend Mark who I share my allotment with um, said you know it's like what we've given up for convenience we've sort of lost in all these other elements which you get back like really starting to become connected to a very small localized area and um and just the the, just the lessons that that growing food and crops give you you know this whole range of sometimes you're there with a fork and a hoe trying to dig out bramble roots and you know you really feel like you're reaching into your subconscious and ripping out (laughs) the root and (laughs) tendrils, trying to keep very delicate little seedlings and see them through and um, yeah and all that sort of teaches you degrees of resilience and you know just emotionally and psychologically you you get just get so much back by actually just being out in a little bit of um of of the landscape and noticing what insects and birds are around you and noticing with your input how the soil's improving and the worms are um proliferating and yeah all that just feels like it it's kind of filling this um psychological divide that i think you know as modern humans we we suffer from this sense of alienation and the world becoming so complicated and unfathomable and when you kind of just get back to basics and you know it's 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 no surprise that gardening always figures up there in in the pursuits that humans really enjoy doing just um so you know whilst at the same time i'm under no illusion as to how hard it is to actually produce clothing completely in a um, non-fossil fuel input way and obviously not everyone is in the position to be able to do that but it does feel like it's at least uh a direction of travel where we we can take back more because i think it um what we get back from it is even greater than just vegetables on the plate or clothing on the back there's everything around it um yeah and and as i mentioned at the beginning um you know i found it textile i mean the textile and craft world is just like the gardening world it's just this it's just really wonderful because people love to share it's like if you've got a question there'll be someone willing to bore you at length about how how they go about it and i've become one of those people um so yeah it's it feels non-threatening to me um people you know it takes as long as it, it as it takes and you know the more the more people doing it the the better the party so yeah I, i've really enjoyed that aspect of it the social aspect
0: it is interesting how you've connected the two very basic human needs of needing food and needing clothes and connected them in such a, a way that you're growing both in your allotment and what you're saying about when we industrialized all this the luddites have often been misunderstood but they were warning us about where we have arrived at today
1: yeah but, yeah and i think sorry just no, to jump no, in and i think yeah i mean it you know whilst undoubtedly some degree of mechanization does remove a huge level of burden and i'm and i'm certainly not writing those that off but you know as your uh, podcast chatting to the harris weavers the harris tweed weavers and just there are these little gems of models that did work and i and i i just love that sort of you know 100 years ago when our engineers put their minds to creating um machines that spun and weaving machines and those machines are still running to this day because they're so simple and mechanical and they're easy to understand and fix and replace parts that felt like we hit a sweet spot right at that point whereby um, it was still within the common person's means to at least you know, there needed to be a degree of industrialization for that to happen, steel production and that kind of thing. And, you know, again, looking to the future, I do wonder whether, you know, even that level of uh, of mechanization is, you know, I, I, I feel that it's probably keeping things going is going to be more important than creating new sort of high tech computerised ways of doing it. but but as we've made the machines more efficient um i think we've just slid blindly into this massive overproduction you know it's for these machines and factories to pay for themselves they need to have they need to be producing you need to be selling that to to pay back the investments and i think yeah we've just sort of stumbled into this um, situation where we've found that we're just overproducing huge folds and and much of it um in uh fibers synthetic fibers which don't need to be used in those in those particular ways as much you know I, i i understand that lightweight outdoor clothing has been really liberating for people people have been able to in a weird way it's actually been enabling people to get out into um areas that may have been difficult to in the to in the past when you were wearing heavy tweeds and thick wool jumpers and you know all of that but and of course there's loads of applications for all sorts of things where you do need those synthetic fibers and they are you know they are the the medium of choice to be able to do that medical equipment and oh, just so many things but in terms of clothing it feels like no we can totally be using traditional fibers and stuff because you know for it's just that they're so functional and pleasant to wear um, and aren't shedding huge amounts of uh, microplastics into the environment. Um, and in a way, it feels like if it, I mean, it's it's such a difficult question, I know, and I don't have the answers. It's like when you go back to doing things by hand, things become more expensive and then it becomes an elitist sort of thing. And I think that's why, where I've kind of gone. Uh, so to counteract that, to make it affordable, you've really got to try and do it yourself as much as possible, um, you know. And whilst the, the weaving of the cloth itself is probably, you know, you do need looms, and not everyone's going to have access to to looms, even uh, hand looms and stuff. So, you know, but but in sewing clothes in and, and this keeping clothes going and you know there is that mad phenomenon when you, you even you know I found that even just replacing a button on a shirt suddenly I feel a connection with that garment in a way that I just didn't before and it feel, suddenly feels like oh, I've got I've invested in this thing now I want to keep it going and you know the the more you go back the more input you put into a piece of clothing it it really does become this meaningful thing that you know is is darned and mended and handed down and cut up and re-patterned and yeah I mean I think I think that's what really I've learned the most of this is just uh, f- from this exploration of textiles is just how um how personal and valuable cloth actually is it's you know traditionally it was probably one of the the things that you really didn't invest in, good boots and good warm, warm clothing. And we just lived with, or the common person certainly just lived with much, much less clothes, much fewer clothes. But the clothes you got, you wanted to be tough and strong and functional. Um, And, you know, it feels to me that like when a relative or a close family member knits you a, a garment that there's just a personal connection i feel like that that story's in in the cloth and you're kind of when clothing was made in a very localized way for your tribe or for your family or for you your people that you're kind of wearing wearing the story of of that people and the hardships and the joys and the everything else that goes on around it is sort of somehow woven in or knitted into the fabric itself, and it just becomes uh, the precious object that it, it actually has been through through most of our history. And you know, I've I've found spinning just the most wonderfully meditative um, process. It and but it's the real bottleneck in the pro in the making of clothes you know i can't remember what the saying is you know seven or 12 spinners would serve as one weaver um so a lot of people were spinning a lot of the time and uh yeah you know if if what i personally got out of the process of spinning is felt more universally which i think it is from chatting to chatting to people who do it, who you know knit or spin or whatever um is it's just such a a, an emotional and psychological panacea you know it really felt for me that in the aftermath of um, Alex my wife dying um that spinning was you know as soon as I was just feeling a little bit overwhelmed I I would just just spin even if it was just for five minutes and it just had this um sense of uh just ch- chilling out the monkey mind a little bit and you know the wonderful thing about spinning is it it once you've got it in your fingers it's kind of mindless it's a bit like when you're driving a car and you get and you go goodness i can't really remember anything about that journey it's kind of like that with the with the spinning it's just there's things you're slowly feeling um uh, a sense of movement that you're 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 adding bit by bit to what will ultimately be a garment in the future but it's giving you just, just something tangible in the presence and yeah i just think that that so much so much of our psychological difficulty that we're that we're carrying as modern humans is is actually really um sort of corrected by just using our fingers because i think we've been doing it for so long that there must be some kind of genetic or ancestral memory in in our bodies whereby when you try and make a basket or you sow a dig a plant a row of spuds or something that you just feel relaxed and calm and um yeah so it's kind of it's almost giving back more than the clothing itself at the end of the day.
0: Now, I'd like to hear a lot more about the actual practicalities of spinning, because this sounds like something I could really get into because I'm having a hard time learning to knit. But I'd also like to hear more about the history of the fibres. Now, I imagine uh, that nettles were one of the sort of original ones, same as flax, possibly hemp, so you've got the plant-based ones and at some point wool must also have become more usual but possibly later can you say it, anything about that
1: yes i mean so i've been piecing this all together bit by bit from random bits of information i've come across the way i mean i never knew that wool wasn't really a thing until we started breeding sheep which were originally was um for meat purposes but you know, old breed um, sheep sort of have memory of what sheep actually were originally. And they're, you know, they had this very soft, short fibre undercoat against their their bodies. And then these long outer hairs, which were used to shed the rain and stuff, both of which um, weren't particularly uh, useful. Um, I mean, they would have been utilised, but... You know the the skins originally of wild animals were were much more useful in in the leather itself but as we be as the whole kind of neolithic um farming radical different way of living started to evolve then wool actually became um became a a fiber that that we could use and thus sheep now largely have to be um, sheared every year because they just don't naturally shed their their fur doesn't work their, their wool doesn't work in quite the same way so yeah before that um, all, all, most of the fibers used were plant fibers and you know wherever you go in the world our ancestors seem to have totally understood in their particular environment or the environments they move through which plants gave which fibres um, uh, that that were useful, and the and the degrees with which you needed to process them. So yeah, we've been using flax or wild flax for. I mean, it must go way back, but there's you know imprints of flax seeds and old pottery from about thirty thousand years ago, or, oh. or imprints in clay. So we were definitely probably using. Um, uh, flax, both the fibre for making cordage, I mean, previous to that we were using animal sinews and other sinews to stitch leather together, but, um, and same with hemp where it grew and nettles too, that, um, you know, the, the the difficulty in the historical record is just to how few of these fibres survive the the passages of time. You know i've heard it said that the stone age could equally have been called the cordage age it's just that the cordage hasn't endured whereas the flint tools and that sort of thing has been preserved and you know really the the discovery of weaving and the dis and the, and the which you know it goes back so far into the depth of time and of being been able to twist cordage is just so incredibly useful for you know i I'd really never really thought of it about how important string is and just day to day living making bags, making baskets, lashing things together, creating shoes creating um uh sort of garments so yeah as far as net i mean I've heard it said that um there was a Danish researcher Margaret Ho who in this Uh, essay uh, spoke about nettles as culture plant and I've never really quite understood what she meant from that but what I took from it was that these these plant fibers and these particular plants I call them the holy trinity hemp flax and nettle of course there are many others but certainly in a European context um, those were the the primary fibers and they all have this amazing quality of providing food medicine and fiber all from the same plant and really that how those those plants particularly really would have um tied us together in a cultural enterprise of being able to um yeah just live and move in the environment in a a very different way um in Gillian's book, um, From Sting to Spin, where she went into the history of nettle fiber, you know, again, it looks like I, it's, I get the impression that the heyday of nettle probably would have been like Neolithic early Bronze Age, um, you know, where particular fibers grew is a really complicated history. And as fibers were starting to be used and, you know, l- flaxed from what i can gather doesn't actually differ vastly from the original wild plant it's just been uh tweaked over the years and how we get it in the modern days we've really it's the same plant but it's it's m- now much more grown for the seed for linseed for the the seed itself for linseed oil for animal feed for all these other mm. functions, where it's been bred to be very squat and seed heavy um but more traditionally it was also bred to go the other way where it was tall and you got these long fibres from it um, and so you still see uh, linseed grown uh, in U- in the UK um, for the seed but the, there's been a real resurgence of actually using the the longer fibre and of course uh, we just on our doorstep. We've got a very long tradition in France and Normandy and Belgium and Holland, that that sort of sweet flax growing area where they still have um, factories and you know a lot of the European uh, flax um, has been grown and uh, you know for centuries. And you know that that's that's wonderful that that's still going. I mean. But in the world market, I think all the natural fibres collectively make up less than, apart from cotton, make up less than 1% of all the fibres in use. So, yeah, cotton's the by far the most um, widespread um, plant cellulose fibre in use. But, you know, looking at the, the figures of and the destruction and the history of cotton, I mean, it's a really, really dark dark history and um i think there's a growing awareness that in in certain areas of the world flax and hemp are just much much uh better much lower energy use much much better suited um to the environment than needing to depend on cotton so you know like all these things it's never black and white cotton in certain parts of the world is undoubtedly the ideal fiber to be growing um so there's not one or one fits all sort of panacea to any of these issues but i think our reliance on cotton um has been um has, is is having a negative impact on you know especially farmers in india where they've been uh, sort of led down these cul-de-sacs of being heavily dependent on being supplied by seeds that can't be collected and re-sown and needing them needing to buy particular, you know, the genetic modification of these plants, which um, mean a reliance on certain roundups and chemicals in order for them to grow, you know, just the scale of the mechanization of cotton growing in large parts of America, where it's just, you get the impression it's just these moonscapes of cotton at a particular width apart so these huge machines can trundle down and you know whilst it's efficient on one level the when you start to factor in the environmental impact of of, of it being done on this sort of scale it suddenly doesn't become you know the, the true picture starts to emerge and it's uh you know there's brilliant work going on by so many people and casting a light on the, on the actual implications of, of that way. So, yeah, but anyway, just to re- retract back to nettle, um, you know, there's some really interesting finds, um, especially in some of the Danish bog burials where the conditions did allow uh, fibers to be preserved. And I think it's only really in recent years with um, sort of X-ray, um, much enlarged, you um, examination of fibres that a lot that's been attributed to being flax is turning out to be nettle and um, you know really interesting things like very early finds in some of the Danish bog burials of them being able to work out that even though where the where the remnants of the fibre were in the in the burial the the nettle so that we've been able to ascertain it is nettle that was being used. It wasn't necessarily nettle that grew in that particular area it was like it had been um exported or imported from a, an area maybe you know a few hundred miles away which sort of gives the impression that there may well have been specialization at, at a very early stage i mean in the uk we've had this incredible archaeological find at a place called must farm which was um uh, these uh, this little a group of houses round houses that were built on stilts that were driven into the the mud in this little estuary because of course rivers um, were the the motorways of of the past and you know incredible specialization like I think there was you know beads being produced in Italy which have been found all over Europe um, like the, that had already been centralized as a as a production unit of beads. Um, And I get hints of that, that even that nettle may have also fallen into that category because on must farm these, there was some conflagration and the the, the huts caught fire and just the, the, things were charred and then just dropped into the silt so they were charred but incredibly well preserved and and there's evidence of looms and loom weights and just these little beautiful charred balls of of fiber which um they think were probably well definitely nettle in part um, and really finely spun um and woven so yeah you know i think people had and What's interesting to me is the way that I process nettle depends ultimately on the end being able to use wool carders, just these little fine teeth um, tines to be able to uh, get the unwanted debris out of the fiber. But when these uh, uh, fibers were being processed then they, they didn't have metal tools or certainly didn't have carders. So they were being processed in some other way um and quite how that was done is also starting to be um uh, yeah we were starting to get a much deeper understanding of, of how ancient people did uh spin their fibers, and there seems to have been a lot more splicing of these long fibers and then um so they were just the ends were twisted together, and then you. You went along to the other end and twisted the new f- bit of fiber on so there were these just very loosely twisted coils of fiber and then and then the next step with th- those two of those joined up lengths were then spun on a drop spindle so they were basically the spinning part of it was more applying Um, plying the two threads into one and that's where the strength came from because you can when you examine the ancient textiles from ancient egyptian linen onwards um, you can see the little splices as you examine the 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 fibers Um, so where these splices splices fell and then the strength coming from the the twisting so yeah people found a way of doing it and were were producing pretty fine cloth And, of course, that really, you know, as we became more settled and less hunter-gathering, rather than needing tough animal skins, which would have been the perfect material for millennia, of moving through thorny, uh, scrubby um, ground, as we became more settled and started to, uh, you know, have a pastoral and became more located in 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 static areas is those heavy leather um, clothing wouldn't have been as suitable um, or as comfortable so we didn't need um, textiles that were so durable in terms of walking through rough scrubby landscape it was something more um, comfortable and uh, lighter weight to use for working in, in fields and digging and plowing and that sort of thing so yeah that's that's where i feel like nettles probably had their heyday and because they're a foraged crop and have always remained so i i i get the feeling that where hemp or flax was introduced because they're much easier to process those would have been you know as soon as you had access to that fiber you probably would have moved away from nettle um although i think nettle probably always played a, played a part certainly on sort of folk um level of of just when crops failed or just to bulk out 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 your crop um you know nettles were always there and um yeah so so i think and of course nettles just being such an awesome food i mean above all else you know net, nettles just are when you look at at the you know very protein high vitamin c just a huge range of minerals that you get um and you know you get f- a flush of wonderful edible f- leaves in the spring and then again in the autumn um so n- and nettles just love our settled um domestic and animal lifestyles because they're they're quite a hungry crop so wherever animal has been kept and our own sewage and waste that's where nettles love to grow so a bit like sparrows or something i think wherever human habitation has happened nettles proliferate in that area so it's such an easy crop to to gather um so yeah i feel like you know we 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 must have had a, a long lasting and an ancient connection to the to those plants and just one final thing from the historical um information that's been thrown up by the nettle for textiles group and uh, other archaeological research is that um the oh i just suddenly lost my tra- lost my train of thought with uh, uh, with that um oh yeah that that, that those um where hemp or flax was more perhaps difficult to grow so probably further eastern europe where there was, uh or, or north europe into the scandinavian countries where the growing season was shorter and maybe um it, linen or hemp took longer to reach into there seems to have been a, a more recent unbroken tradition of working with nettle like nettle um endured longer in those regions and there seems to be you know a a richer almost folk folk verbal lineage of going of people going oh yeah i remember my grandparents or my grandmother used to use nettle and make make fabric from it you know um you know when you look it up online probably one of the most recurrent uh mythologies or, or rumors is that uh, nettle was used in germany during both world wars when uh, that the transatlantic cotton trade was disrupted um and that's never been really panned out that extent that you know people check um i never knew this was a thing but after battles people go and collect uh uniforms of the Uh, you know the opposing team to examine them and see what they were using Um, and nettle has never really been found in german uniforms but um, just in one of the the screenings we did of the nettle dress a a woman got chatting to me whose um, father or grandfather was a prisoner of war in germany in the second world war Um, and he maintains that the, the clothing that they were given was in fact made from nettles and it was really rough, and they and her, her dad or granddad suffered from impetigo and sort of uh, you know because it was such such rough cloth, Ouch. and that really really figures to me that that's a much more likely u- usage because nettle there've been so many attempts down the decades to to get nettle into you know being a rival of flax or hemp and it never seems to have ever really panned out because even though it's so similar and it's difficult to tell the fibers apart once you get there, nettle's just much more problematic um, to industrialize. To to my romantic imagination, it's almost as though nettles have resisted industrialization and they're now (laughs) coming to the fore, showing us the way back to a more hand way of working. Um, but that said, the, the the Germans definitely have done the most work with nettles. And post-war, um, this uh, scientist called Bredeman, um because one of the reasons nettles has never really cut it more commercially is in the wild, the fibre content is actually quite low, um, whereas uh, flax, it's much higher and hemp higher still. So for every plant of flax or hemp, you get a lot of fibre out. Um, with nettle wild nettle it's much more uh, it's much lower so you need a lot of nettles to you know I've roughly worked out a rule of thumb over the years of having uh, played with it is you probably get about a gram or under of usable fiber per nettle plant so you know the 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 nettle dress ended up wet or the cloth weighed just over a kilogram and so I can tell that it was at least a thousand nettles that were used in there, but given wastage and all that, was it, it was a lot more than that. So, but yeah, but the, the Germans did a under Bredeman, uh did a lot of cloning, um, well, breed breeding of nettle, and created a, a, a nettle plant with a much higher fiber content, and that um, that plant is still being used and very it's kind of like open source it's not a copyrighted plant or however that works so there are universities all over Europe that still have descendants of that clones and it's uh, it was being it was grown in the Eden project um, in Cornwall here in the UK and various universities have um, experimented to see whether nettle uh, could be used more uh, more commercially because it it has this wonderful uh quality which the you know hemp and uh flax need you, you still need to plow and re sow every year um and you know that that is plowing is quite disruptive to soil um whereas uh, nettle is more like coppicing you, you don't pull it out by the root you just c- cut it above the base so once you have your field full of um, cloned or high-fiber nettle plants, really for seven to ten years, you're just coppicing the stalks, and you're not having to plough or dig up the and re-sow each year. So, and it doesn't need any pesticides um, either, because you know I think every British butterfly or you know wherever nettles grow, they they their whole life cycle is on the nettle they lay their eggs on there and so it's actually um you know wildlife promoting and uh, butterfly promoting plants so yeah those are the really positive aspects that we, where nettle is but it is more it is more difficult to produce so more costly and you know whether whether net i mean it is starting to come into market there are nettle blends nettle blended with wool you know i've heard you talk about it one of like socks for example it's it's a real debate when you have all wool socks you're feeling virtuous but they only last a few weeks or months of hard wearing and then you've got to on them and you know there is that thing of man you just put a, a bit of polyester in there in with the wool and they suddenly last ages it's really difficult to know ultimately which is the more sustainable way but i think um nettle seems to have been used as a there's a there's a brand called the on- onion brand which is um uh, sold, sold as a, a sock uh brand. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I think I think it's a Scandinavian con- uh, country that onion belongs to. And it's um but they are using European high fiber nettle in that. And I think the nettles may be uh being used um to to make the the the, the wool more durable. So replacing the polyester with the natural fibre but to just give it more, uh, to just make it endure a bit longer. So, that, so that's, so it is starting to come out. Um, but I think maybe as we go forward and we start to actually cost in the environmental application uh, uh, implications of, of certain fibers, then suddenly the cutthroat worldwide market of it being the lowest prices is the, is the common thing. You know, if 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 you had to start to put an, a cost in for microfiber wasted onto the actual company producing the fabrics or the clothing, then it would make it obviously a lot more expensive. So it might level the playing field to a degree. But, you know, I think personally, I don't know whether... Nettle. I, I think flax and hemp are probably much more viable, and I, you know, I would I would put my energies into using those more widely rather than uh, than nettle per se. But 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 we will see. Um, you know whether there, there is a place in the wider marketplace for nettle. I mean, most of the you know if you went to uh, on the internet to try and get hold of some nettle yarn or nettle cloth. What you, you wouldn't you wouldn't find any uh European nettle cloth or very unlikely to unless it's been completely handmade by someone. But the Nepalese um up in the Himalayas, they have uh, a species of nettle which they call aloe, which is a very, very tall nettle, um, much more like hemp than than our nettle and it's that is all being done by hand uh too it's being processed and spun and woven just on you know with with very little modern technology. and and that tradition goes back unbroken for for a long time and i think modern brands are coming in realizing this probably is the most sustainable fiber out there but again there's that so it is starting to appear in uh you know brands using himalayan nettle but again it's one of those areas where information is hard to come by the information and i do worry that perhaps the uh, bigger brands are coming in for the fiber itself and the local uh, population are being used to gather the fiber and then sell it to the companies probably at a very low um you know, it might be a living wage in terms of Nepalese, but I feel there's a, there's that old problem of their own uh, indigenous skills in weaving and spinning and it being central to their way of life is being bypassed. And I think from having spoken to some of the nep- Nepalese um, nettle workers who are part of uh, Nettle for Textiles, um, you know, the, the markup comes when you actually start to produce um, garments or finished goods that's where you start to get paid back if you're just selling the fiber it's a very very low margin and I do want do you know hope that it isn't but there probably is an an impact on their own um, traditions of weaving and skills that that, that's not really being valued Um, so like all these things it's a it's a complicated history to actually unravel but but yeah net you know in short nettles it's they've been used and nettle traditionally has been used wherever it grows um and i think the etymology of like net and nettle isn't accidental i think you know in you know our, one of our earlier application of being able to spin and or create cordage is that enabled us to make nets um which is probably like the bicycle one of those um inventions which for the energy you put into what it gives you back is just so efficient mm. that um you know you you're, you're able to to suddenly free up a lot of time for your uh your tribal population because you're suddenly able to catch that much more fish or more animals which i think in turn allows there to be more um more time to be spent on developing textiles and more, you know, ornate uh, textiles um, using nettle or whatever as the fibre. So, yeah, that's just my limited understanding in this whole area.
0: (laughs) Uh, One thing that struck me about the Nepalese, um, it must change things massively for them if they're growing nettles to make their own garments from. And if they then are suddenly going to be growing to sell for foreign companies, um, that must mean having to grow a whole lot more nettles, which will dramatically change everything for them. Yes. I mean,
1: I I think the nettles grow wild. So they talk about going to, they go into the forest to collect the nettles, but the You know from what I understand it's almost like an altitude thing lower down you can grow turmeric and ginger and that sort of thing as a commodity to sell to be able to bring in income to cover your you know other necessities for items that you can't manufacture but you know the the nettle workers seem to be at a higher altitude and really that that um plant has really has been a culture plant for them as well as um providing them with all the you know it it can be woven incredibly um finely in these uh, really beautifully openly knitted and crocheted garments which um uh you know are really soft the handles beautiful but the they also being less uh, finely spun create this incredibly what um strong durable fabric you know perfect for making basket uh tying you know cordage tump lines really not- lovely thick jackets that you'd want to wear um in their particular terrains and stuff so yeah it it it, it does feel that um that it is, it is going to, ha- you know, as as that resource starts to become recognised as so environmentally friendly that, you know, there is going to maybe be over gathering or it be get starting to be gathered in an unsustainable way because I I understand that the nettle plays a a really important because it grows wild in just holding that steep Himalayan soil together. You know, if you if you suddenly start ripping out all that root structure, you are going to um, start you know have soil being washed away and that sort of thing so you know the way the way they have used it traditionally has been in such a, a balance and because it's done by hand you're not going to be um, harvesting more than you can you know the, the, there's there's natural limits on how much can be used and uh, yeah so you know that there is that concern that as that becomes the new wonder fibre that you know, it it could have knock-on effects uh, down the line, hmm. but yeah, I mean, early on in my researches, that was really the one area where I could find information on, and you know, there've been there've been some really wonderful. Um, Foundations and charities, most notably the Susie Dunsmore Trust, who was a, an English woman whose husband was in the an ambassador on the foreign service. And while he was off um, having meetings, she went up into the mountains. And you know, she had a textile background, and she studied and worked with them. And she, you know, what the way she thought that they could, they they were asking her, you know, how how can we. Um, be able to sell more of our products to a wider market Um, you know she was very much coming at uh, advising them on different styles and techniques which may be more palatable to a western audience but actually working with them to to, you know keep the the weaving in-house and um, you know training training up spinners and and that sort of thing really to keep the tradition going um, so that was a uh, you know a very sensitive um uh union of of, of working with the local the, the local population and keeping those skills uh in house and um yeah and, and, and an interesting model again a bit like the you know Harris loom weavers or something you know the Harris looms uh, weavers do have those incredibly brilliant mechanical looms but you know because of the terrain in the Himalayas and lack of electricity in, in lots of the areas you, there, there just isn't a way of, of of really mechanizing the whole process so um but it, you know incredibly productive i mean you know you could just go on on the internet now and and be able to buy some nepalese um, yarn or fiber at a really affordable price and you know maybe lose track of the fact that this is largely been done completely by hand with people with very very simple tools and you know working on backstrap looms and that sort of thing so you know but what i found so fascinating about about them and and it, it being a continued tradition is it's just such a window back into our not so distant past of going oh wow okay to to actually produce a surplus of 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 cloth or clothing above one's own immediate needs just how much input it you know human input that really took and how you know spinning and uh you know knitting and weaving would just have been such a so many people would have would have been involved in doing it you know i i hear stories of my grandfather on my on my dad's side he worked in the coal mines um near glasgow um you know of 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 miners knitting on the walk to work and knitting on the way back and you know and you certainly get glimpses of that seeing how they live in the himalayas you know they there's uh, there's one channel on youtube um uh which uh, local filmmaker just Uh, shows um, day-to-day life of lots of the the Nepalese villages and oh my goodness you know you see them walking uh the women go off to as well as the 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 nettle they work with they're also spinning wool and other sort of things they make these lovely woolen blankets which they go and sell in markets so they all set off on this pilgrimage over the mountain passes down to the village which takes them quite a few days carrying these huge baskets on their back with tump lines across their head because the paths are mountainous paths so they're walking in single file and you know you would would have thought that carrying a huge basket full of heavy woolen blankets was uh effort enough but no they're all knitting and plying <laughs> while they're walking one behind <laughs> the other it has got the ball of wool which is linked to the person with the knitting needles in front and then you see them stop for tea and the, the packs come off everyone whips out the spinning wheel spinning the spindles and knitting needles and someone gets the tea on someone gets the food going while everyone else is sitting and and spinning and chatting so it's like goodness that that's really how how we must have been living too and um yeah you know it's um and that sort of really just spoke again going back to just speaking to me of how these things you know like the whole making of the nettle dress, even though it, it took me seven years really from start to finish, you know, some of those days I was doing little more than maybe spinning for a few minutes. That's all I could fit in around life, but um, just, it never felt like drudgery um, because of what the actual handwork was giving me back psychologically and emotionally. So, you know i i kind of extrapolate that model outwards going you know and and having been part of local fiber groups and spinning groups uh, in brighton you know it, it's incredible just getting together with a bunch of people and people get out their spinning wheels and uh, you just spin and chat and it's um it, it really it's really conducive to that just sitting around together and talking and conversing it it so whilst it's by far not the most efficient way of making uh, garments Um, it feels like it's the whole process is socially cohesive whereas the super efficient global complicated supply network way of working feels like often it's fracturing you know you're, you're kind of breaking apart the the tradition of people working together and knowing one another, into suddenly the jobs being, you know, you are suddenly on your particular spot on a a chain of production where you are separate. There just isn't that sort of bringing together kind of thing, um, you know. Same, same with uh, a lot of industrial farming methods. It's it, it feels like it's um, yeah, it, it, it sort of fracture, it fractures um the social structure which really is such a a wonderful part of the of the slower way of of doing it you kind of yeah it's almost the wrong the wrong lens to be looking at it um uh, you know going well how much can you produce how cheaply can you produce it rather than going what is this giving you back in the in the process of doing it so yeah that's
0: so you did touch upon the spinning process now, because I'm, I'm still really curious about, say, if I was going to get into spinning. So, I mean, what, what do you need? What is the actual sort of nitty-gritty of the process? And you also mentioned ply, to ply I, I have a vague idea of what goes into this. And there's there's the thread and yes. the spinning. And it's quite complicated. Yeah, I mean,
1: the, the, you know, I'm by no means a, a proficient spinner. I kind of, I, I, I can spin the way I need to spin for what I need to do. And there's, you know, and when I teach people spinning, which occasionally, I you know, any opportunity I, I try to do, show people how to spin because I found it such, a, such a, an amazing thing to do. You know, I say to them, look, this is going to be frustrating for a couple of hours, but beyond that point, you'll, you'll have it and you'll just you know it's probably i say it's like two hours to learn it and maybe a lifetime to master but you know that really it's such a you're just adding twist and there's just this amazing thing that um you know fibers like when you prepare plant fiber or, or wool in its raw state you can ju- you can just easily tug it apart it's got no intrinsic um kind of cohesive collective strength but as soon as you put a twist into it into the fiber suddenly there's a there's a strength to it and it holds together so that really is all you're doing with spinning is just adding twist to the fibers and preparing the fibers so that process of putting spin into them in a controlled way is is really so is all your you know each one is different it turns out nettle fiber certainly the way i process it ends up being quite a short fiber So whereas flax and hemp are are quite a long fiber so so in the spinning of a long fiber it's um it looks different um to maybe spinning wool is because you need some sort of stick or a distaff um, just as a way of holding that long fiber in a way that it doesn't all end up in a tangled mess so you can like uh, you know you hook your spindle onto one end of, a, of that bundle of combed fibers that's been uh, sort of wrapped around as something as simple as a stick just to hold the fibers and provide a bit of a, a resistance so as you so as you adding spin to the fiber you're letting a little bit of twist go into um, into the fiber just enough that kind of like a little whirlwind it sucks in the 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 stray fiber strands next to it and then that uh, gets spun into your yarn so you've got spun yarn on one end of your finger fingers and the other end the raw fiber and you just controlling the amount of twist that goes into the fiber bundle If you if you put too much twist it would just lock into a big glob that all came out all at once but by just controlled amount of twist going in it just collects the next few fibers which then get drawn out and then become the yarn and so once you get underway it's almost it's it's a bit like I always think it looks like milking a cow or a goat or something it's just this gentle opening and closing of the fingers just to crack uh, grab the, the next bit of fibre. I mean wool's a really nice thing to learn Learn spinning on because the structure of wool it's got these little scales um, on the fibre so it's naturally a little bit grippy um, plant fibres are essentially smooth so really the main difference between spinning wool and spinning plant fibres was with the plant fibres um not cotton so much but certainly flax linen hemp um is you're using saliva so as well as twist you you're using a bit of you're either dipping your fingers in a bit bit of water or using saliva Um, and how that seems to work with uh, nettle particularly is is plant fibers have uh, pectins in the in the plant and pectins is just like uh, you, you know from jam making; it's a sort of gluey, gluey substance. And so, when you are preparing the fibers and you you're retting them or basically separating out the fibers from the rest of the plant that you don't want, um, there's always a little bit of pectin that's left in the fiber. And so, as you And particularly with nettle so as you run the 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 yarn through your through your mouth to get saliva on it um, the wetness sort of activates the pectin so you can feel your fingertips having a little bit of stickiness to them and so as well as the twist there's almost a little bit of gluing going on which just holds it holds the fiber together and you know it's there's loads of videos on youtube about how to how to spin and you know i'm a really frustrated learner if i can't do something within the first few minutes i'm lying on the floor and <laughs> tears, is hammering my fists on the carpet um but it's um it really doesn't take long to to get um to start to get a feel for it and in fact every time you learn spinning or every time someone showed me spinning they said make sure you keep your early um, yarns that you spin because you'll spin with a wild abandon that you soon lose as you become better. You want evenness and consistency and you inevitably end up spinning finer and finer and finer and almost backing yourself into a corner where it becomes nearly impossible to spin this lovely art yarn, which is lumpy and full of character kind of thing. So, you know, there is that element to it that, that, um and you know it's amazing see on the nettle for textiles just you know there're there lots of people at it now and producing samples of of their own uh, nettle cloth and nettle yarn and everyone spins differently i mean i heard it said and i just didn't believe it that you could almost tell which spinner spun what if you just were looking at a bunch of um yarns on a table it's almost like a fingerprint of, of how people spin. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't think it's probably quite at the level of individual individual fingerprints. But, yes, yeah, seeing the nettle cloth that people produce, there is such a wide range of, um, of results. And, you know, some of it's fine and looks like it could have been uh, spun or woven almost on a on modern modern machinery it's so even and beautiful and then at the other end of the extreme this really lovely characterful uh, earthy cloth that just on a human level really sucks you in because you can tell that it's not machine spun and it, it's just got this um, sort of wild quality to it so yeah it's um so it's it, it's a skill that's really spinning is a skill that's easily spun and you know i I always have a little bag of a, a drop spindle just the simplest form of spindle and some fiber in my uh, my bag or um, whatever I'm carrying with me and it's just it you know pretty much the whole cloth for or the whole yarn for the nettle dress the warp I spun on a spinning wheel that modern t- uh, middle age invention which just speed spinning up a degree but you know pre-middle ages every single bit of cloth that was spun was spun on spindles which is just a stick with a little weighted whirl on it at some point and you know you just think man all you know sails bags cloth rope it was all created just Mm. by this really simple portable bit of kit and you know i was told by someone early on that there's a saying that Um, a spinning wheel will win over a day compared to a spindle but a spindle will win over uh, over a week because a spinning wheel demands that you're sitting still in one place and Mm -hmm. so it's more efficient but the spindle you uh, and and fiber you can just carry that around with you and you just use all these little pockets of time in a day which actually amount to quite a lot where you're waiting for supper to cook and you're just, you know, just sit down and spin, you know, on a Zoom meeting. I mean, today I'm not actually spinning, but quite often, you know, I'll just spin or on a video call with someone and it's amazing. it's quite easy to spin and walk. So when I take the dog around the park, I'm the nutter there walking <laughs> along with a box spindle in their hand. And, um, you know, it, it just all slowly adds up. And, you know, when you look at old paintings um, of people spinning long flax, for example, which is on a distaff, which they have tucked into their belt. And, you know, that, that, People walked around with that, especially um, women who were doing the more um, chores nearer the house and looking after children and stuff. You know, you could um, be rocking a, a cradle with one foot and spinning at the same time. Or, you know, you walk down to the field to feed the, the, the chickens or whatever. And as you're walking down, you're you're spinning. So it's, it's almost like um, you're capturing moments of time that are otherwise... Um, Ill used in a way because you, you know, and you know, I love nothing more than to listen to a podcast and just sit there spinning whilst I'm doing it, whilst you know, or watching a film or whatever. Um, so, yeah, there's just a, it is slow, but it's incremental. And um, you know, the, after a while, at some point, you go, Oh my goodness, I've spun enough fiber to actually make something with now. And you know, the, the end the end garment is almost like an added bonus just because that the actual spinning and itself just seems to be, and I don't know whether it's because it's uh, an almost genetic thing because we as people have been doing it for so long, but you know, it really, it really has a meditative calming, calming feeling to it. you're not having, to, it's like knitting even. I, and I'm like you, I really struggle with knitting and remembering to, count rows to actually make garments and not lose track kind of uh, necessitates a degree of awareness but with spinning it's just it's just a never-ending thing and it's the same throughout so it really it becomes almost mindless um and but just affords you uh you know your body's busy there's a degree some part of your mind's uh, focused on the thing but the The experiential feeling one for me, at any rate, and I think for a lot of spinners is just, um, yeah, just a sense of being at peace with oneself because, um, yeah, it's just it's just very relaxing.
0: It Seems like a good point to segue into the nettle dress, which is once you'd spun, you wove, and then you made a garment. So you've you've actually gone all the steps what was the story behind it
1: yeah so um you know i I was a couple of years into spinning and i you know i was like right in my uh desire to know what nettle cloth feels like i'm gonna have to do something to change the yarn into a cloth of sort and i I knew that I wasn't a proficient enough knitter to go that route, so I thought the only thing that really I can imagine being able to work out is weaving, um, because I, you know, understood the basics. That's basically, you know, you you create a frame of warp threads, and then you just, even if it's as simple as just having your weft yarn on a uh, a needle, you just go over one warp thread, under the other, over under and then pull it through and it's you know it's the same as making a basket and then you you do the same coming back but going under what you went over before just this very simple alternating thing is that it's going to make cloth and so really I started off almost tracking the evolution of, of the loom. I started off working on a back. I made a backstrap loom because that was very easily made. And a backstrap loom is really just a series of sticks that you um, ultimately tie one of the sticks around your waist. And so in a sense, you become the loom itself and you, <laughs> you just uh, get a l- load of threads, one end of which is tied to a, a wooden bar that's that you've tied around your waist and the other ends just uh end up being tied together around a tree or a hook or something and um yeah you just you just by leaning forward and taking the tension off the off the threads that are between you and the the hook you um you can then you could do it simply again as just going over and under um, which would be a very slow way of working or you'll you soon realize that oh man if I could lift every alternate thread together that would speed things up a lot and so it's obvious that you just loop every second thread and tie it to another stick so when you lift that stick every second thread is going to come up together and then you can just put your needle straight that's called a shed um just put your your um, needle and thread or shuttle and thread or stick with thread tied to through that shed and then you want to lift up every other thread in the next one so one stick will pull up all the uh, odd numbered threads and the other stick will lift up or pull down all the even numbered threads and it's as simple as that from what i realized even the, almost the simpler the loom the the more skillful you have to become so to walk to to weave a balanced cloth on a on a backstrap loom is actually really really highly skilled um and i just knew that i didn't have the time or the training to become <clears throat> that good at it so i looked at the looms that were being used by the vikings for example the greeks um Uh, uh, a loom that, you know, modern looms are horizontal, but there was a a time when looms were vertical and there was practical applications for that certainly in uh, wet, damp, uh, um, you know, European climates where people were uh, often living in roundhouses and having a loom that you could just uh, just lean up against the wall and didn't take over. A whole room was much, much convenient, more convenient. And you could move the loom to the doorway because often those um, houses uh, were quite dark. You know, windows were uh, were not really used because the, the, the dwelling would be much less uh, insulative with windows or holes for light. Um, and so I made a, a loom... Uh, just out of wood that I coppiced from the local woodland and made a loom and practiced on that. And I found that that was easier, but still there, I could see that it would take quite a lot of skill to weave a balanced cloth on that. But it was the same principle as the backstrap loom, except it was now all, it wasn't wasn't tied around the waist, it was within the, the, the loom itself um and then eventually uh, i thought right I, I totally understand the principle of it and so just looked at and was given a simple table to modern more modern table top loom where it was horizontal and you know really weaving it, it can be incredibly complicated but it's in principle it's actually a very very simple process um but it's just when you when you first that are introduced to a loom. It looks impossibly complicated because there's strings all over the place and these string heddles that the, th- the 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 threads have to go through. And so yeah, it's all shafts and foot things, and it's it's incredibly intimidating. But if you talk through it, you go, oh, right, okay, I see what's going on." So, um, so yeah, I, I just worked myself up and got uh, in the end. Um, got a, a a floor loom um, which was the loom I, I wove the the nettle cloth on and um, yeah you know I just in each of the, the the subjects or areas that I had to get a grip on in order to see the see the project through to its fruition I just had to you know actually just sit down and learn it so worked out the processing learned spinning and could spin um, well enough that I could see it was fine enough that it was going to be able to make a garment. So originally, I just made these little samples, um, like I said, just going over and under with a needle, and and the first ones were very very rough. It was like, oh man, all this work, and I've ended up with a fabric that's you know <laughs> like an exfoliating scrub, or a, you know the worst, even a Hessian sack felt um, much much finer. But as the spinning got um, better and the processing got better and I got cleaner fibres, I started to get to a point where I was like, oh, man, this is actually starting to feel like it's um, supple enough and smooth enough that you could wear this against the skin and also discovered there's a lot that you can do to a a cloth once it's woven um, to actually soften it up. You know, the finishing is actually a whole nother subject. But, yeah, so worked out how to do the weaving and then finally I had to learn an, enough about sewing to actually once the cloth was woven um, change it into a dress and each of these areas you know I went to a night school class to learn the basics of of sewing um, but really because of my lack of skill I just wanted to make what whatever was the simplest way of getting there was in the end what i did and so i looked at um again the viking kind of age medieval and before um techniques were really useful because our ancestors had already worked all this out just how to make simple garments using the cloth as economically as possible so you know, modern clothing—well, not modern—but you know, for hundreds of years, we've we've really taken um, pattern cutting to a high art, been able to create incredibly fitted dresses and jackets. And you know, I really am in awe and honor of that degree of engineering and skill that's been um, developed. But the further you go back, and the more hand-made um, the whole process is, is that. You know as i immediately worked out with the nettle dresses man i don't want to have to weave an inch or more than i have to in order to realize this cloth project nor do i want an elaborately shaped uh pieces cutting out of the cloth where i'm going to waste a lot of this um of the cloth that i've so that has been so hard fought for so um yeah as i kind of looked back through the history of clothing and stuff i found this rich vein of cloth that was you know in the past looms the the width of cloth woven what was much narrower than how we get modern cloth and so often the cloth was woven at a width really where the width was was the, from shoulder to shoulder kind of thing and so rather the, and, and you could just use the the natural width with the woven salvage um as is so the design of the dress was really uh, simple in that the the basic core of it was just just the length of cloth as it came off the loom uh with a head hole cut in it so it was just kind of like a tabard it just was flat at the front, a little head hole and then flat at the back. And then the remaining bit of cloth uh was just divided up into uh triangles um and uh rectangles and and they were just fitted in into the cloth so if I cut out a triangle that had it, it the edges of its base being the width of the cloth as 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 tall um as the triangle needed to be the the two right angled triangles from the pieces that were left either side of that triangle you cut were just turned around and stitched together um and yeah so those bits of triangle were just fitted together to add fullness to that basic tabard shape so a slit was cut in the front and the back and a triangle in, inserted um just so you know if you didn't have that you would have a very tight dress that you'd have to shuffle along yeah. um you know having no movement so you're just adding triangles to the sides and to the front uh just so that the, the cloth was quite naturally fitted down to the waist and then just flared out um and uh yeah, and the the sleeves were just the width of the cloth just folded over so so there was very very little wastage of of the actual cloth itself and every bit that was cut um was used um and so really though and and that that basic design lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years in european uh, culture it was basically a simple undergarment you know if back in the day you were fortunate enough to be able to afford some linen clothing that you could wear under the under your woolen clothing um really those those were probably the two garments that you possessed a a woolen under under i mean a linen under clothing um and men and women wore um a skirt shaped under under clothing because uh uh, skirts was it's just such a um you know it's just such it's such an awesome solution Tr- trousers wear through in a, in a more complicated pattern to to cut so yeah so basically it, it was used more as your as your basic undergarment for wearing wool on top um but it, it, it was such a practical um design and Um, really the two techniques that aren't really used in modern sewing so much because of modern pattern cutting is just something called a gore or a a godet which is just how to fit a triangle into a slit and then the underarm was just made with this little um, square panel um, just where the body joins the bottom of the sleeve um, just because that allows uh, free movement of the arms and uh, i think that that sort of uh, gusset as it was called as it's called is still used in like ballet tops and some theater clothing because it, it, it allows greater movement and yeah it, it, in your uh, podcast uh, um on the gansey uh, the gansey uh, knitted sweaters from from guernsey i think they they also have that gusset th- um technique uh, knitted into the underarm so you can have a tight fitting uh top but still have uh movement um on a on a, what's essentially quite a simple pattern <clears throat> so yeah i just i learned enough just to be able to pull off what i i wanted to learn and um you know it, it worked i was like i you know i'm still kind of staggered that really with my relatively uh, rudimentary skills in it all of the areas needed to get the 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 fiber through to a finished thing. I was able to make a garment which um not only is comfortable but it it the almost because of i was unable to weave something super fine it's just got this sort of weight to it um where it just feels like you know it's going to it's going to be long lasting um and because i'd done everything by hand i didn't use a sewing machine on the making of the dress I, i stitched it together by hand um yeah and all the all these little things like you know what i realized was um you know so i spun the thread to actually stitch the garment together with and um know I'm so used to using modern cotton threads or polyester threads which can be really really fine but certainly polyester thread is really strong but super fine and the thread that the thinnest thread that I was able to spin uh, so plying is just where you you know when you spin a yarn that's a that's called a single it's just a a single yarn Um, but if you ply two singles together you make a yarn that's obviously a bit uh, twice as thick because you're joining two singles together but is exponentially stronger than the you know if you laid the two strings uh, or threads next to each other and pulled them they would be a bit stronger than the singles but somehow when you're plying you you're creating a strength more than the two of them together singly kind of thing but anyway, because I knew I was going to be having to pull this thread through the cloth, um, it was going to have to be really strong, not to not to snap and come apart. So I ended up doing a three ply thread, um, and because I couldn't spin nettle fine enough, if I tried to ply the nettle. Uh, two ply or three ply it was going to be a really thick thread so in this thread I used to stitch the dress I I used two singles of flax uh, that I'd grown and spun from the allotment with a single of nettle but and I needed a big needle in order to get the thickness of that thread into the uh, through the eye of the needle But because it was a bigger needle you know if on a modern cloth as I pulled that through the cloth it would have kind of left a hole displacing the the fine threads but because of the um, the relative coarseness of the cloth that I'd woven um, it totally accommodated that thicker thread Um, and I learned along the way that historically the thread that you that was used to stitch clothing together was usually thicker than the thread in the actual cloth um, because it needed to be that bit stronger so yeah it all it all worked incredibly well i mean i I must have cut that cloth nettle cloth in my head a thousand times before i actually had to put it out on the floor and get the scissors out go oh my god i hope this works (laughs) Um, but it did work and um you know it it feels robust and certainly um it's after i you know did finishing on the cloth and kind of softened it up by pressing it with a stone and various sort of things just to uh, yeah finish it and just make it more user friendly Um, it produced you know a totally functional usable garment and You know, so I felt my original inquiry was like, oh my God, it really is possible. You can use nettle to create a garment, but oh my goodness, did it take some time? You know, it's like.
0: (laughs) Well, having seen photos of the dress, it does look very proficient. I would not have guessed that someone who is claiming to be pretty hopeless creating garments has made it. I mean, the fabric looks great and the dress does look very good. I'm surprised um, your daughter is wearing it uh, that you managed to sort of um, get the size right over the seven years Um, I also noticed it doesn't look like you've dyed it but you do grow plants for dyeing fabric in your allotment
1: yes that's right I mean I I did think long and hard about whether I should dye it because as it turns out nettle dyes really really well Um, you know dyeing cotton um, and linen is sometimes a little bit more difficult than dyeing wool Um, but in you know as I played around with nettles and dyeing the samples uh, that I was making I was like wow nettle dyes really well I think maybe because it's quite fluffy and the shorter fibre sort of plays into that I think I decided not to dye it because I was just really interested to see what colour the dress would go naturally over time uh just being exposed to sunlight and um and that has been really interesting because when the cloth was first on the loom it was like you could almost see the different batches of nettles that had gone into it there were these like st- stripes down the cloth and you you could almost go oh that was one batch and that was that color brown and that was that batch and that was a bit lighter and but once the cloth was woven and I did that, uh, I mean, I scoured it so it was boiled in some alkali, some washing soda or wood ash or whatever, uh, which just took out a lot of the, the colour that hadn't come out in the processing, the sort of background um, is that it has just naturally moved to, to a, a whiter, well, kind of off-white colour, so I was just interested to see how the the finished cloth and the, the the finished dress would actually change over time, just in the in the wearing. And I was interested to see how it would soften up in the wearing, um, but also just what the how the cloth um, behaved. And you know what what's happened is that all those stripes of different batches have all even themselves out, and the dresses uh, just kind of become the single. Uh, light slightly off-white um, color um, but when i finished the dress i still had quite a few um, nettle fiber, uh, nettle yarn left over which i had been dying over the years just as an experiment to see how it died so I made myself a, a shirt with uh, the linen that I'd spun from flax I'd grown and also the little bit of hemp that I'd had access to in in recent years as the the hemp revival's been going on alongside the the flax revival <clears throat> here in the UK um so I wove um, a shirt uh so it's probably about 35% nettle 35% flax and the rest um uh, hemp but I'm showing it to you on the, obviously our listeners won't be able to see but you can see how um, so these are all just uh, largely dye plants that were grown on the allotment or foraged um, with a couple of others in there um, but yeah it, it, it dyes up beautifully and uh, yeah. you know if I decided to go that way I think I think the dress would have um, yeah would have come up quite quite bright and vivid in in a, in a natural dye
0: very good it's a wonderful story um now the nettle dress is out and it's on the certain cinemas in the uk and you can also see it online i believe
1: yes yeah, so what's happened is um we we do have a, a uk distributor for the film dartmouth films and it's playing in cinemas uh currently in the uk i mean it's we're into it's uh third month now on on being on general release and it's still i think it's going to be in 30 different cinemas on this coming wednesday so yeah it's it's run has been much much longer than any of us expected including the distributors so yeah it's been wonderful in that respect how how it's been received um but at the moment we don't have uh and sorry you know dylan's been really keen for this to be um experienced as much as possible in the cinema so we did a couple of online viewings um really to raise money along the way to actually realize this film because it was just essentially made entirely by dylan and me being his willing assistant carrying bits of kit into the woods and that sort of thing (laughs) um so yeah, it was self-funded, um, but the nettle for textiles community really got behind us, and you know, uh, helped our crowdfunding things just to really get holds of bits of kit and get the film finished nicely and stuff. So Dylan really wanted the, it to be a communal experience, actually seen together live in cinemas, and I was a bit like, man, that can't we just put it out online and be done with it? But Actually, it's been really wonderful uh, doing it that way because every screening has been, you know, at the beginning, at any rate, we were We were accompanying each screening by doing a personal Q&A afterwards. And it really has been like a gathering of the tribes. It's been kind of a party atmosphere, even though the film, um, at least in part, deals with loss and grief and Mm. my, you know, the nettle dress and the nettles helping me through that process. It's really been a kind of celebration of craft and um, it's, yeah, it's really been wonderful just people getting to meet each other and join the dots and um you know at physical screenings uh but last week we did a a worldwide online screening for all the countries outside the uk who've been clamoring to see it um so that was good and we will we will undoubtedly do more of those again um but perhaps in the coming months the film will be picked up by an you know, some sort of online viewing platform and um, it will be available to watch online. So in the UK at the moment, it's only actually cinemas you can see it. Um, And the rest of the world um, will just have to keep their ear to the ground or the um, Nettle Dress uh, uh, website or Instagram page um, just to find out where, where the film is
0: being screened. I'll put the links in with the, the show notes. Great, thank you. Okay, Alan, I think, uh, I think we've come to the end of our chat today. Is there anything you'd like to mention in closing?
1: No, um, thank you very much for having having me on. I've so enjoyed listening to your podcasts and I'm honoured to be uh, featured amongst all the other great names that you've had. And uh, thank you for
0: having me. I'm so pleased to hear that. Thank you very much. Okay, Alan, thanks so much for our chat today, and bye-bye for now. Goodbye. And that was all for this week's Garmology. What will next week bring? Well, the best way to find out is to hit subscribe or follow to automatically download next week's episode as soon as it's published. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, I would appreciate a review and rating. You can leave a rating on Spotify as well. You know, I keep saying this, though it's been a while since anyone actually did leave a review, so maybe surprise me. If you'd like to get in touch, my email is welldresseddad at gmail.com or welldresseddad on Instagram. Again, links and details in the show notes, including a link to the Patreon details. Catch you next week. Bye-bye.